0: On today's episode of the SSPX podcast, we'll continue looking at the concept of morality with Father Palco. Last episode, we saw that an objective moral code does exist. Now we'll start to tease apart what this means for us. Are there circumstances where the same action can be more or less bad? What about a person's conscience? Does someone's conscience reign supreme, as is often said? We hear a lot about how we shouldn't judge someone's motivations. Is all of this true? You can find notes to all of these episodes at sspxpodcast.com apologetics, as well as all of our previous episodes. There as well, you can find a link to help support this project. This is free to listen to as well as all of the resources we're posting, but if you can help with a one-time or a small monthly recurring donation, you'll be making sure that we can continue this work of producing good Catholic content on a regular basis. Now let's join Father Ian Palco for episode number 33 of the Apologetics series here on the SSPX Podcast. Well, Father Palco, it is great to have you back again for this second part of what we were talking about with the uh, with the moral life. The um, last episode we were looking at the at kind of how Christian morality is being is based off of the natural law. Is that correct?
1: Right. So we we were trying to I I we think we initially were thinking to cram everything into one episode, and when it looked like it was going close to an hour, thinking hmm, maybe maybe we need to divide this up. And so yeah. the, the first part there was more looking like we were what we were trying to do in that first section is is really look at more of an apologetic for we could say natural law theory. a brief apologetic about how the church's idea of morality, or at least that there's different schools of thought but but the going morality that the Catholic Church teaches or, or is is best explained from this perspective of the natural law and how that then leads us to a sort of very simple and straightforward and sensible way of looking at morality. And hopefully then building on some principles, which is what I kind of wanted to do with this part of this, uh, the, the episode, now the second part here, um, is to talk about some of the principles that are based off of that. In a certain sense, give, give a sort of structure to how a Catholic priest or how Catholics think through human acts and how those look as far as whether they're moral or not moral. What do we mean by sin? What do we mean by virtue? those kinds of things to, to help us to kind of flesh out that picture that we built that was based off of natural law. And then a few of those things, the positive w- will or the divine positive law choices of God on certain aspects of things.
0: Okay. One question I had that, that I think that we're going to be answering during this, this episode, maybe oh, not, but, but well, one thing I'd, I'd one like. One
1: way or to, the other, we'll, we'll try to answer it now. <laughs>
0: okay. It well, doesn't I'd, give I'd anything like the, away. The, yeah. The, the idea of, of, what makes an action good or bad? Right. I mean, so, so we know from our catechism, murder is bad. Adultery is bad. Stealing right. is bad. Yep. Um, but is there something, and again, tell me to just shut up and hold it if we're going to get there, but is there something inherent in the, in these acts that make them bad That no. make moral things, moral and, and immoral things immoral, or is it just God said, so, so deal with it, Andrew
1: right well i mean that would be the easier answer but then it really yeah. wouldn't be a very rich answer if it was just well god said so in fact we sort of mentioned that before um that idea of nominalism right one of the one of the ideas of a nominalist is that there isn't a nature to things Things just are individual things and we can group them together. We give them a name, trees, human beings, dogs, amoeba, whatever it is. And that we're grouping them together, not because they share something, except a few qualities. And as a result of that, in a certain sense, every man, every tree is an individual creation of God and they don't have a nature. And as a result of not having a nature, God is just decreeing certain things for these beings to follow. It's not as a result of something that they share, this human nature, as we were talking about. It's just an arbitrary decision of God, and he could have it a different way if he wanted it, and he just doesn't want it that way. Um, so that's the opposite, I would say, of that natural law theory that we had there. Ultimately, what's going to make something, to answer your question, what's going to make something moral or not moral is going to be whether it's in conformity with whatever the standard of morality is. And yesterday we were trying to establish when we were looking through that episode, um, we were trying to establish that the the standard should be the natural law, should be based off of this relationship between God and man. And in fact, that's really what I think the the more rich way of looking at morality is the nature God created us. There's a relationship that's created of dependence based off of that. That sets up God's nature and man's nature and behaviors and a standard already. That relationship there between creator and creature means that there's going to be a relationship also between our actions and that standard, which is our nature, whether we're following that nature, whether we're going against that nature. That's what ends up being the standard for morality that we're at least going to try to enunciate. We tried yesterday or tried in that last episode there. Um, Now we're going to try to enunciate that. In, in a, in a deeper manner today, I would say.
0: Okay. So, so basically morality is, is all about, uh, this, this relationship. It's, it's first a relationship between God and man, between, between the, the one who created us and the created thing,
1: mm-hmm. and then
0: the relationship between us then, and what we do with right, ourselves or others or God himself. Indeed. Indeed.
1: Okay. Yeah. And and that sets up, if you think about it, that correct notion uh, that we we ended the last episode with this, you know, we have this notion of morality being this relationship between the act and the standard. But that's because of a relationship between God and man, the nature of things. And we set up that there is going to be an ultimate objective standard, and that is the eternal law expressed in certain ways, both the natural law and then when it doesn't correspond to our nature or violate our nature, certain other choices of God. We worship on a Sunday. We worship on uh, in previous, um, you know, in, in the previous covenant. We worship on a Saturday, I mean, you know, but in, in certain ways by sacrifices and these kinds of things that were commanded. Um, those mm-hmm. are the choices of God that don't, our, our nature just says we have to worship God. Those further choices of God, that's what's added on. That's divine positive law. But then okay. those are the ultimate standards. But ultimate being, those are the highest standards, the the transcendental ideas that we were talking about yesterday, the transcendental rules, those need to now be applied. And there's going to be a more close standard for us. And that is using our reason, our our right human reason, well-formed, hopefully that's one of the things we'll do, a well-formed conscience, for instance, using those kinds of things to then apply that eternal law to our individual actions the conscience being the subjective one, the one that says whether I am to do this or not to do this, or whether what I just did was in conformity or not in conformity.
0: But at the very beginning of that, we, we do need to have, like you said, the reason. So we have Mm -hmm. to know whether or not something is right or wrong. And I guess that brings us into the next point, which is, well, we have to know stuff. We have to have an uh, an intellect. A dog is not able to sin because he doesn't have an intellect. Is that broadly right? right?
1: Although, I mean, uh, Yes, that's true. But you do notice, and, and this is an interesting point, but aside from what, what the the standards are there, you do notice that dogs do seem like they feel a bit of shame or they can be kind yes. of sad, right? We they have emotions, they have passions just like us. And that's why those passions, while they affect morality, they don't create morality. Just because somebody is sad about something doesn't mean it's moral not that, that sense of guilt that we started talking about in the previous episode there as a sort of proof that there's there must be something not down from below in our lower nature or from our development in any way from. But but there's there's this this guilt can in a certain sense be imitated by emotions in animals. So um, I, I when, when I when I talk about this um, in, in sermons and trying to guide uh, people in their moral life, we have to remind them that. The passions, the way we feel, feelings don't save us. They don't damn us. It's it's something more. And that's where we're going to talk about human acts, because man can act in two different ways. When you're sleeping, when you're digesting, when you're just kind of uh, dreaming, you're doing things very similar to animals were defined as rational animals. We have this rational part to us, but we have this animal part to us. So we have emotions, we have a body, we have these lower sort of um, appetites, these these passions that we have, and and those will lead us certain ways. When we're following those without any kind of entrance of our mind, of our our thinking, of our knowledge, and of our will, of our desire, or our, our choice of something, we call these things that are unintended human or acts of man versus human acts so when you're sleeping and you dream of something even if it's a murdering somebody well that dream wasn't controllable by you unless perhaps beforehand you spent some time meditating on how you were going to kill this person (laughs) you you set yourself up for that fall that's that's an entirely different thing but when it's completely unwilled the will is not involved in at all the knowledge really isn't involved at all our, our higher faculties, the things that make us like God in his image and likeness, our intellect and our will, when those aren't there, we're not talking about anything that has a moral character to it. A dog can't sin, like you said. Well, we can't sin when we're not conscious of what we're doing, when we're actually completely out of it. Um, right. And a comparison I've used before in in a, a, a class in morality at the high school level was, um, if you go around, and so think I'm talking to teenage boys at this point in time when I'm talking about this but if they decided to wake up in the middle of the night and they were really mad at their sister the day before but they 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 were just asleep and they were sleepwalking and they happened to kind of just walk in and you know see oh this is a nice place to lay down put the pillow down and and they 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 smothered their sister to death that you wouldn't be guilty of a crime there you also wouldn't be guilty of murder you wouldn't have committed a sin you were sleepwalking you didn't know any different and the fact that you were mm-hmm upset with her beforehand doesn't change that what you did was not intentional. Whereas if you happen to do the exact same thing because you were mad at her now, completely knowing what you're doing, well, that's not only a grave sin. It's probably also something that would get you put in jail. Um, right. So we have to make that distinction early along between an active man, something we don't have control over. It's instinctual as it were, but, and then human acts. And that's where that knowledge comes in. There is a knowledge that we have to have to, to choose something. And so we can either have, you could say, oh, it, it, well, another way we put it, some, sometimes when we talk about mortal sin, and we won't get into mortal sin here, but we talk about attention, uh, whether we, we've we been attentive to the circumstances around us. So attention and knowledge go hand in hand there. Um, you have to know what you're doing. You have to have a, a full attention to what you're doing. For it to have a complete morality to it. If, it. if you back off and you have less attention to it, if, if you weren't sure what you were doing, um, if it were somewhat attentive, but somewhat inattentive, then it will have less of a moral character to it. And the, the further away we get, the more we don't know what we're doing, the less there is a moral character to that action. Okay. Um, if we wanted to divide up that knowledge, we could actually divide it up into sort of three different ways. We could talk about a complete knowledge or an incomplete knowledge. We perfectly understand what we're doing or we only imperfectly understand. We're sleepy, our attention isn't complete. We could divide it as a distinct knowledge or kind of confused one. We recognize this action right here and its morality Or we kind of see in this superficial manner something. Maybe it's good. Maybe it's evil. We kind of have an impression of it, but we haven't really focused in on the action itself. We can also have um, a, a knowledge or an attention that could be virtual or actual. Virtual isn't the kind of computer type stuff there. What we mean is it has a virtus. It has a power that carries it through. We have to start with an actual intention or attention, and then once we've had that, then we can have this virtual attention. It's inattention physically, but we still have the same the same attention, as it were, along the along the lines um, along the lines of doing this action. Um, perfect example here: you go to confession and you receive a penance to say. Make the next Holy Communion, in good Holy Communion, your penance. Ah. And you completely forget about that. But at the time you went, right, next time I go to communion, I'm making that my penance. You don't remember that at all. You've gone to communion 10 times. In the meantime, you fulfilled your penance, even right. though you didn't at that actual communion have any attention to what you were doing, making that penance. Your, your intention, your physical inattention at that moment of communion was... Actually, had a, a, a an intention behind it, an attention that was carried over from that 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 intention from beforehand.
0: Um, it's so, kind of like if we have like a list of of all the poor souls that we would like to pray for, we exactly. have a in tally or something, and then right. every time we say the rosary, for all of my usual intentions. Yep, there and, and know, a priest I've done it.
1: A priest does this too, right? At the moment of my ordination, I say um, I, I've told myself that whenever I. Say mass. I intend to consecrate any fit matter, uh, any, any fit matter into our Lord's body that is within this corporal here. Outside of it, no. Within this, yes. So now, after I go, oh shoot, I left the I left the ciborium on the table over there. Well, it's not consecrated. I know my intention, and, and that carries through even if I don't make that clear intention each time. Um, Interesting. So the total sidebar. Is that
0: something that you're told to do when you are yes. ordained
1: a priest? Yeah, it was highly ah. recommended to you <laughs> uh, when, yes. when, when you're doing a priest. Otherwise, you, you get into these moments of scrupulosity. What, what, what did, I, right. did I did I did I do that? Did I intend? And if even you completely have an inattention to that moment of consecration to even make an intention to consecrate here. Well, you have made that intention beforehand. You've gone through the motions. You have that virtual attention to what's going and, on.
0: And since the sacraments are ex opere brato, it doesn't matter if you right. are. Uh, right. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, that was indeed. a sidebar, but that was, that was fascinating. Thank you. Yeah.
1: Well, it, uh, along the same lines too, the intention for which we say the mass, right? Sometimes I, I will go in and I try as best as I can to, to remember precisely who I'm saying the mass for that day. I'll look at my calendar, try to remember it. But at that yep. moment of actually offering the mass, I think, Oh, wait, wait, was it, was it that, or was it, I offer it for whatever is in my book today, whatever is on <laughs> yeah. my, uh, on that, that book for that day today. Um, yeah. God can read. Um, So so he understands. So that's
0: virtual attention. That's 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 virtual. Yes. Okay. Yeah,
1: that's virtual. I am inattentive at that moment to what's going on, but my actual attention from beforehand kind of controls the action I'm doing right now. That's virtual attention. Actual attention is, I know precisely what I'm doing. I'm paying attention to it. And that's okay. sufficient. That attention is sufficient for the valid sacraments for me to recite my breviary. Right. I'm following through I'm reciting it here. And I'm, you know, I, maybe I'm not understanding every word, but I'm I'm following through. I'm trying to be attentive to it. it it's sufficient there. It's also sufficient for venial sin. So if you should know that that's probably a bad thing to do and you don't pay much attention to, you need to do it anyway. Well, you can still be guilty of sin, even though the attention, the actual physical attention was missing because you've had enough beforehand where that bad intention from beforehand has carried through now to an action or that negligence beforehand has carried through to that action as well.
0: I had one of my students say that that exact thing to me last week. He's like, well, sir, then wouldn't it just be better if, you didn't tell us what was right and wrong and we just mm-hmm. didn't sin. And I said, you yeah. know, that's such a thing as uh, purposeful ignorance. You yeah. can't do that either.
1: Sorry. Well, there, hey, and there's ignorance, right? And that's the lack of attention or, or you could say a lack of knowledge there. We actually would want to make a distinction with, with um, and maybe this will help for your students too. Uh, we want to make a distinction between ignorance and nescience or a lack of, both are a lack of knowledge. But okay. nescience, from uh, not knowing, necio in Latin, versus ignorance, ignoratio, it's cognatio, but then with the uh, with the in cognatio there, so it negates it there. Um, they're both a negation of knowledge. In the case of ignorance, when we talk about that, we mean you should know, but you don't know. You're meant to know. There's a lack of a due knowledge. It's due to you. Um, you should have known that. Whereas a is you don't know it, but there was no obligation for you to know it at all. Right. It's just a lack of knowledge. It's it's a empty hole where there should be knowledge, but you weren't supposed to fill that in. It's the hole that was, you know, the actual, you know, it's the well it was there. You're not meant to fill it in. Whereas the ignorance is the the hole that you trip over in the backyard that you were supposed to have filled in a while back. And now there's a degree of guilt because of that. Whereas in the nescience, it's supposed to be that way. Um, okay. Example there is um, as as a priest, even with, uh, with my engineering background, my science background there um, and computers and things like that, I have no need to know about neurosurgery. I have a parishioner now in Texas where I'm, I'm taking care of the, the chapels down there in North Texas. He, he's a neurosurgeon. I don't have to know how to do surgery. That's that's not part of my job. Um, if he's asking me for a moral question, I'm going to have to fill myself in. Now it becomes a degree, to a degree, part of my job. But I don't need to know how to do surgery. And I'm not ignorant of that. I am, or in a certain sense, neshian of that. It's, it's not part of my job. I don't need to know that. Right. And I also don't have, okay. because there's no obligation to know that, I'm not guilty of any kind of sin in not knowing. Whereas the things that I need to know to forgive souls and to answer questions correctly. So if I screw something up on this podcast, talking about the faith, well, that's my own ignorance. And, and I could be guilty for that as a result of that. Sure. Um, when that ignorance though, leads to a mistake, we call that error. And so when we make an error, it's usually coming out of some kind of ignorance, not necessarily a nescience there.
0: Okay. Now, like we were talking about with, with our, with our student or, or, or yourself who, who's doesn't understand something or, or, or doesn't know something that, that he should know, Mm -hmm. then we are obliged to make every best effort to uh, correct that and to understand uh, that thing a little bit better. Right. That's the case with us, with our faith. We are always supposed to continue learning about our faith as best we can. As best you
1: can. You you don't have to have the knowledge of a Gary Lagrange. I mean, um, we're meant to have a knowledge you know, that is appropriate for our ability to understand. Um, if we have um, if we put prudent and reasonable means into solving the, the lack of a knowledge, any ignorance that remains, we would call invincible ignorance. That oftentimes it's sort of a, another side point here, but that oftentimes comes up when you talk about people who don't know the faith you know, what about those people who live on the desert island and have never learned about the faith? And how could they be saved? Or are they simply damned because they don't know about anything? Well, they would be invincibly ignorant. Invincible ignorance takes away, um, as we'll talk about in a minute here, more of the principle part of these things, where we'll run through a few principles. Invincible ignorance is, well, ignorance is, is that whole. It's nothing. It's not anything. It's not. You don't possess invincible ignorance there is there's a lack of something you don't a lack of something is not something right we talk about it it's a mental idea of something but it's not it's a lack of something so it doesn't save you it just gives you an excuse for not knowing that thing you can be not guilty for something but it doesn't do anything no a lack of something never does anything you have to have something to act, right? So opposed to that invincible ignorance where we've made the effort or in this circumstance, in this situation, there's no way we could solve this lack of knowledge. We have what we call vincible ignorance. That's if we use reasonable and prudent efforts, we could get rid of that lack of knowledge. Um, On the simple level, simply vincible ignorance is where we just have to spend a little bit of effort and we should be able to solve this problem. We can have what we call crass ignorance or supine ignorance, um, again, crisis of the, the church type thing when, we, when we're talking about Archbishop Lefebvre and sort of defending some of his actions. We sometimes cite the canon, I believe it's 1324 and 1325, might be off by one or two numbers about Um Exemptions to penalties. And it's talking about whether there's crass or supine ignorance there. This is what we're talking about. This is where there is grave carelessness to remove the ignorance. Um, we've not spent any effort to, to remove the ignorance, right? Uh, obviously, in his case, we're not. We're talking about that. Um, but this crass or supine ignorance, it's vincible. It could be removed. We just don't put any effort into removing it. That's different, though, than perhaps the ignorance that um, your student was talking about there, which would be, I would guess you could call it more of a studied or affected ignorance, right? Yeah. We, it would be nice if we didn't know this. So I guess we could look it up. You know, I could go ask father if this thing that I think is probably a sin is actually a sin. But if I ask him, then I'll know and then I can't mm-hmm. do it. So I'm just not going to ask. Right. And yeah. and as a result of that, then I'm ignorant and then I'm not guilty. So it sounds like a sounds like a nice little setup. Whenever yeah. you find those little loopholes in moral theology, they're not loopholes. They're, they're just, they're just <laughs> sins at
0: that point in time. <laughs> yeah. Generally speaking, if you, if you think you found a loophole, you didn't. You didn't. No. You, you, there's there's lots of sinners throughout history who have sinned a lot better than you exactly yeah exactly we're we're not real creative on that
1: i mean no. yeah on one hand original sin ends up being very creative in the kinds of things that it can cause on the other hand it's not particularly creative most of the things that most of the, the faults that we fall into now people have been falling into it for a long time just maybe a little little different on on exactly how that's done so
0: yeah exactly yeah all right so how can these things influence influence the actions themselves
1: well so oh it's definitely definitely because you need knowledge and you need a will an act of the will to to sin or to merit even so you need that for the morality of the action to even be good or to be evil and for us to have that character imputable to us um you have to have knowledge you have to have will since we're talking about knowledge now let's look at ignorance if we were invincibly ignorant then what we do is not and is not going to be willful it's not going to be imputable, so we can't be we can't will something unless it's previously known. Just as we can't love something that we don't previously know, this is why, for instance, the, the virtue of charity is necessary. We, we need to, in order to love God, we first have to have faith. We need to know Him at that point in time. Um, we have also vincible ignorance, right? We talked about that. It doesn't take away whether an act is voluntary. So it doesn't take away its moral character, um, but it does diminish it, right? Uh, Unless it's studied ignorance, that obviously is going to actually increase whether it's willful or not, right? So here's the little proof for that. Vincible ignorance, because it could be taken away, is actually voluntary. It's a choice, right? And so any acts flowing from it are part of that choice. At the moment of an action, there's not perfect knowledge, so it's less voluntary, unless we go, Oh, I think it's probably a sin. I'm not going to look at that. In which case, it actually increases the voluntariness because we've made more acts to try to keep ourselves ignorant in order to justify our sin there. So we could actually extend that a little bit more. Things that are sinful habits, like blasphemy or lying, we get ourselves stuck in something like that. They can create a kind of second nature to us. So whatever we do is done, perhaps without much advertence, without much looking at. it. And so, if we've resolved to fix those problems, then in fact we've abandoned the evil. Those inadvertent failures are going to be far less voluntary, not sins or, or not great sins, because we're, we've worked on it, and they're sort of we're, we're acting out of a out of a broken nature that we're trying to fix. Whereas if we've not revoked that habit, it actually makes things worse, right? The alcoholic who has started to acknowledge his problem and falls back into drinking every once in a while but doesn't get drunk, those little actions there are less sinful than his original actions where he hadn't abandoned the habit, where it's actually more sinful even if he doesn't get drunk, for instance.
0: Okay. Yeah. And this is also what the church means again, maybe a little bit of a sidebar here, but when, when the church talks about gaining indulgences, Mm -hmm. it says that you have to be, uh, you you cannot be, have any attachment to sin. It's, it's sort of, sort of that thing. Even if I may commit a sin during this point in time, like blaspheming, I I've made the resolution to try not to. And if it Mm -hmm. does happen, I, I haven't screwed up the whole indulgence thing.
1: Right. If you haven't sinned and you're not, you're not attached to it in the sense that you don't want to be rid of those things, if you're looking to take the first opportunity even to commit a venial sin, even to sort of indulge in something venially sinful, well, you're still attached to that idea. You're still attached to that sin. Um, whereas if you have this habit that you're working to overcome and as a result of that, you you act out of that habit, but you don't put all of your voluntariness in there, yeah, certainly. I mean, it's up to God ultimately in indulgences to decide whether you qualify for a partial or a plenary indulgence. That, sure. that's, that's up to him. We can just set up the conditions as best we can. Um, sure.
0: Yeah. All right. So, so those are, uh, I guess next we'll look at, at voluntary acts. So mm-hmm. voluntary acts are things that we, we choose to do again, kind of like Baltimore Catechism 101, when we're talking about what a sin is, you have to, you have to know know that it's a sin and you have to do it on purpose and all that kind of stuff. That's voluntary. Yeah. That's what we're talking about here.
1: Right. So a voluntary act is one that proceeds from an internal source of action. So it proceeds from our will. It's accompanied with all the knowledge and the, the end sought. That's how St. Thomas Aquinas describes it there. And that internal source is our appetites. It's not some external source. We're not being forced to do this thing. Obviously, if we're forced to do something, if our hand is taken and and to grab something or to put our hand to burn our hand on that fire, we're not choosing that. We try to resist, probably, um, but we're, we're not choosing it because we're being physically forced to do something. So it's not from outside; it's from inside, and that's that's our will that's moving us there. And it's not the object itself that's moving us; it's our will choosing that object. Um, and so, one who is physically forced, like I said. No, he's not acting voluntarily. The desire for some end that's not in one's control, right? No matter how much a a farmer wants rain, he can't produce rain, right? The rain isn't a voluntary act, no matter how much he wants it. So a voluntary act has to be from an internal source, um, not from something external. You also have to first have that knowledge. In order to to be choosing something, you have to know about that choice and know about what your options are. You have to acknowledge of the end sought. And that's why part of the voluntary act is, is about this finality, about this end that I'm seeking out, which is why we went through the whole part of seeing how the end does set the moral character of, of what we do. It is the standard by which we're going to judge things. And our, our eternal end, of course, is the ultimate standard by which we judge those things, which creates the natural law and Sets the standards for why does this get us closer to our end, or does it push us away from it, or is it outside of it? For instance, um, and so a perfectly voluntary act has that int- intellectual knowledge in our mind, and also is is not just in, in an imperfect sense knowledge of things. There, there's a if there's a lack of knowledge um sleeping digesting and there's spontaneous actions those aren't voluntary even if there's some sense knowledge i kind of feel a little bit nauseous right now or my body is telling me through the senses to to move the food along to the small intestine for instance uh, not voluntary there so it has to be a knowledge of the end sought and also this willingness this internal source that that seeks out and desires that end there
0: okay that's fascinating so how do we how do we divide these voluntary acts even further? I'm sure there's a way philosophers have been working on it for a long time. They, uh, how they do have? we divide these these acts even further, Father.
1: OK, so um, we could look at it as whether they're necessary acts. Right. Um, there is a necessary voluntary act. You desire happiness. You can't not desire happiness, right? The desire for eternal happiness or beatitude, the beatific vision, is something that as long as soon as we know about it, would draw us towards that if we really truly understood it, right? That's a necessary act of the will. It it will it's the will produces that necessarily, as long as as all the knowledge and the conditions are set up correctly and we're not we don't have a malicious will. The other acts that aren't necessary are going to be free acts. So those aren't necessary the result of a free choice. That's where the possibility of an error, the possibility of a moral character, good or evil, comes in here. We could divide them also as whether they're perfectly voluntary or they're lacking in a little bit of that perfection, right? We have full knowledge of that thing imperfectly. We have some sense knowledge. We have a little bit of confused knowledge on those things. Um, this is exactly why the sense decisions of an animal kind of look voluntary at times. We can imagine them thinking, but they're just acting out of a kind of knowledge in the senses. The senses are, are saying, oh, this is good. And they go for it. They, they don't think about it. They don't abstract. They don't consider, well, last time well, last time he threw that ball or he tried to throw that ball, it didn't come out of the hand. They just know that the last two times I didn't run. It wasn't good. And they, so they just stay there. Right. The, the dog. When mm-hmm. you're you're throwing that ball, and you don't actually throw the ball, right? Um, right? So, imperfectly voluntary there, and we can act that way too, right? We can act simply out of a sense knowledge as well, um, absolutely versus relatively voluntary. So, an absolutely voluntary act, we don't have any reserve in doing that thing; it's completely free. Relatively voluntary. Well, we have some reluctance there, right? We know we need to take that medicine kind of unpleasant, but I guess we're going to take it, right? We're reluctant to it. It's not a full act of our will, perhaps. Um, It could be positively or negatively voluntary. We choose that action, or we choose to omit that action, something that ought to be done, perhaps. Or we can directly or indirectly will something. When we directly will something, we desire it in itself, right? The The thief desires his stealing, Whereas mm-hmm. indirectly willed is we don't will it directly. Obviously, that's sort of the definition of indirectly, right? Um, it's not done directly in itself. It's desired perhaps as a means to something else. Even if the action itself isn't desired, the end is desired, and that's along the way, right? So um, I think it was, right, so master and commander, right? The, the mask uh-huh. goes down. They need to cut it loose, right? Right. And that's otherwise the ship is going to sink. Or you have all of these examples, for instance, where where the ship is sinking and they need to throw some cargo overboard. No one wills the death of that person who's attached to the mast. No one wills that the cargo be lost. They will that the ship be saved. But these things have to be done. It's actually not wanted at all. They would rather not have to do it. Um, But it's a means to the end. So it's indirectly willed the loss of the cargo, the death of this man. Um, the loss of the mast is indirectly willed in that case,
0: okay, and then we i mean this is this is an apologetics podcast and and we're starting to delve into a bit of moral theology here, but mm-hmm. that brings up the next obvious question, which is, can you do something bad to produce a good effect, or on the other side, can you do a good thing that has a bad effect? You know, how do you, how do you wrestle with those things and, and which one wins out in the end?
1: So, so what we're, what we're looking at here are, are two important principles, right? Scripture tells us this, but we already know this and it's in the moral philosophers of old. You know, well, well outside of Christian, the Christian tradition will, will tell us this, even in Aristotle, for instance, you can never do something that is evil in order that a good come from it. Right. And that sort of makes sense even on a philosophical level without even referring to scripture or moral theology or anything, because the evil is a lack of a do good, right? There should be good there, and there isn't some good there. And as a result of that, we call that evil. It's it's a hole where there should be a good. Just like when we talked about knowledge and ignorance, there should be knowledge there, and there is no knowledge there, so there's ignorance, Good is is a quality. Evil is a lack of that quality where there should be that quality. And so you can never do something that is evil that good come from it because you're starting in a certain sense at a deficit. You're starting with nothing. Nothing can come from nothing, right? You can only produce more nothing from nothing. And then, so you can't start with something that's evil first to get to a good. You can't start from nothing to get to something that is, as it were, right? Um Whereas you can do certain good things, even though there is what we would say is a morally evil effect that flows from them, provided, Mm -hmm. like we were talking about before in the case of that mast or the cargo, provided that they're only indirectly willed. We don't want them to happen. We would rather they not happen. We would rather we could do all of this without any kind of evil effect whatsoever, and yet there's no way to do that, and so we seek the good and some evil effect. But even there, there's a lot of there's a lot of um, restrictions on on this. We sometimes talk about this as double effect, right? Um, the doctrine of double effect or the indirectly voluntary act, right? Can okay. you bomb that bridge on, that on which the the uh, invading army is about to cross, even though? There are two children playing on that bridge who you can't get off and will certainly die if you do that. Um, Mm -hmm. And in certain circumstances, you can. And in other circumstances, you can't. Um, In the circumstance of, of a grave evil like the invading army, you can bomb the bridge even though people might die as a result of that. Um, another example, we oftentimes talk about an ectopic pregnancy. Can you cause an abortion? No, you can't kill the child. But you can certainly remove the part of the womb that is diseased and going to cause the death of the mother, even though the death of the child will result. Because you're not directly killing the child, you're unfortunately allowing the child to die. And that's a right. different thing. Allowing something to happen is not the same as wanting it to happen. In the case of allowing, you can seek out a good thing and yet at the same point in time an evil effect happens. whereas if you will the evil thing, no good can come from it even if it seems good. Um, so I guess we could probably put some principles to this because uh, if, if we want to we want to actually uh, see where these cases will, will come up and when we can decide these things um, sure first, obviously you can never do evil that good come from it, right? It's not simply semantics. It's not to say that we don't want this evil, but we're gonna do this thing and the evil happens. No, it, it really is a distinction between desiring the evil, that good come from it, and desiring a good thing and it happens, it just so happens along the way. It's not just a Jesuitical semantics here by which we're trying to sort of you know square the circle and, and like the, the, chi- the, the child who wants to be voluntarily ignorant of something. It's not that same thing, it, it's not just semantics. The the intention is for the good. The intention has to be on the good. Um, Okay, so to will good, that's not sin. To will evil, that's sin. That's bad. That's immoral versus something that could be moral. Okay, so that's the first, the ground rules there. If what we do is going to be evil, can't do it. Now, it is lawful to perform an action, even though we will see some evil effect that might happen. Provided that the action that we are doing is at least good in itself or indifferent. Remember, we said that there aren't any actually indifferent acts once you start them. You have an intention. Um, But if the act in the abstract is indifferent or is good, we can perform the action. You're never allowed to do an act that's in itself evil. You can't lie. You can't blaspheme. You can't commit fornication or adultery or murder murder. Then a good and excellent result flows. Can't do that. So a good way of sort of figuring out whether the act is good or indifferent is to act if you have, ask if you have a right to act that way or outside of this situation, would acting that way be acceptable? And if it is, sure. A barman or a, you know, a, has a right to sell some liquor, right? Even though some people might become drunk as a result of that. But a doctor can't cause a death in order that some good come from it. So there, therefore, the man can serve alcohol, even though some uh-huh. people might become drunk. But the doctor can never perform an abortion in order that some women may be saved from that. Right? It, that's, okay. that's the difference here between that. Right? So the act has to be good in itself or at least indifferent before we can even proceed on to another consideration. A okay. second consideration here. The act or the evil effect that flows from this action isn't a means to the good effect. Sin, in that case, would be committed to obtain a good. We're not allowed to do that. Right? The evil effect has to follow the good effect, not precede it. Um, we could define a third principle here that we have to intend the good effect, not desire the evil effect. And we have to remove ourselves as much as possible. Right? We can't want that. We have to try to prevent it if it were possible, or at least make its possibility as far remote as possible. And a good intention doesn't justify evil means either, so it's not just an intention. But an evil intention will always spoil good means here. And then we have to make sure that the good effect is in proportion to the evil that's going to result. This is where you could say, in a certain sense, proportionality does enter into Catholic morality, but only on this kind of question here. If we do something that has a great good that flows from it, and the evil is a minor kind of thing, it would be more easy to justify than it wouldn't be. It would be more likely to be moral. But if the evil effect is serious and terrible, we can't do that thing, even though there is a good effect and we intend that, but there's just great evil that flows from it. So evil is tolerated here. It's it's not desired. There has to be a reason to do so, and it has to be sufficiently serious, not just any good suffices. Right? Um, how do we evaluate that? We could ask, okay, how grave is the evil? Right? If it's minor in comparison, that may be more proportional. How closely tied are the two effects together? Maybe it's a possibility that this evil thing happens, but it might not happen, or maybe it's certainly going to happen. Right. Um, We also could ask the question, do we have a special duty to prevent that? As a father of a family, as a priest and a pastor of souls, there are certain duties that we have and we don't get to allow certain evil effects. And we have a a duty to protect certain people from those effects. And so that would mean that certain things we cannot do, even though somebody else could do them. Um, Example. Let's give some examples here to make sure this this doesn't get lost in, in okay. technicalities and theories. Chemotherapy. You're effectively taking poison, right? You're trying to right. kill some of, your, some of the cells in your body, but the ones that are trying to kill you, <laughs> right? And so you're killing your own cells. You're harming yourself. But the way these things work, these drugs work, is they kill those cells that are reproducing faster. As a result of that, they tend to kill the cancerous cells before they kill the healthy cells. So you're attacking cancer cells. You're harming your healthy cells as well. But there is a reason to do that, Car- causing the harm to the body. No one wants to take a drug to be sick, right? They want to mm-hmm. take a drug to survive, to, to live, to, 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 um, to make sure that this cancer is gone. And so the cancer drug could be taken because you're doing a good thing. There's an evil effect to it. It's proportional, right? Parts are for the whole. So if you happen to be really sick and even, you know, get very, you know, have some after effects after it, you're still alive or hopefully so. Uh, We mentioned the ectopic pregnancy as well. That's that's a a typical one. And then those innocent casualties of war before. Right. You can there's going to be civilian casualties. That's an evil effect. It's not will. You do have to spend an effort to try to protect people. You haven't go out of your way to do that as well. Um, You can bomb the military headquarters, even though people may. Harm, but you have to go about it in a way that is as surgical as possible. There, you can't you can't just attack innocents. This is where you bring up like the the uh, atomic bombs, right? You can't right. just blow up entire cities and kill everybody just to you know to sort of to to try to get a surrender out of those people. It's not moral to do that. If you look right. through those same pr- criteria we had there, it it does, simply does not work.
0: Okay, so if we are so this is this is all of the criteria that we would need to look through in order to see, all right, this voluntary act, is it good or is it, is it evil? Um, Mm -hmm. But then we also have the, the possibility that father, maybe you have a gun to my head and you're making me do something. Right. So the voluntary nature, (laughs) exactly. I don't want to be here. No, I'm just kidding. Um, uh, So that, that comes into play as well. So whether or not you're, you're making me do something. Right. Sure. Yeah. And so, violence—the
1: the physical coercion that comes from an external agent—is certainly going to take away some of that willfulness, and maybe even make acts that aren't are that are not willful at all. If I ho- if I hold your hand and the trigger in that gun, and I pull the trigger, you didn't shoot anybody, even though you physically mm-hmm. were the one who was moving the trigger with my finger in front of yours, right? Um, so violence can, do, can take away some of that. It can sometimes take away the entirety of the voluntariness of an action. So so too with fear, the fear is the shrinking of our mind away from an impending or future evil. This is where I'm not grabbing your hand and por- forcing you there, but perhaps I'm standing off, off camera, as it were, and holding that gun there and making you say certain things. You, you fear being shot, and that mm-hmm. fear can take away your reason as well. Um, grave fear takes it away entirely. Um, and uh, a lesser fear can make it slightly less voluntary there. Um, Your passions, those emotions, those passions in us, right? Those those can enhance or take away the voluntariness there, right? Uh, A soldier going to war better be angry. And the anger actually can enhance the the morality of what he does. If he goes and he tries to valiantly fight, he is even, the, the, the anger actually pushes him to do something with more gusto and therefore with more voluntariness when he, he brings up that anger to go into battle. But if he brings up that anger to beat his wife, well, uh, that actually increases that as well, right? Although in that heat of passion that you kill somebody, not even thinking about it, kind of almost half not there. or. In the case of certain aspects of, of lust, you know, the passions get so enraged that you almost are are in certain cases not really thinking. Um, that can reduce certain certain parts of that voluntariness as well. It will never end up taking away in the case of passion. Usually we would say it never takes away entirely the, the voluntariness of an action. So this is also where your student can't say, I can do all of these kinds of lustful things. And because I was just passionate, therefore I'm not guilty for any of those things either. Sure. That doesn't, that doesn't work. Um, right. there are consequent passions that get excited after the action. Those don't affect the action at all, really. And then there's antecedent ones that come beforehand. Those are the ones we're usually talking about there.
0: Well, that's fascinating. There's, um, there's a lot here, and, I, and I'm scrolling through this, this handout that you gave me, Father, and we're going to be posting this on the site as well, uh, in case uh, people who are listening and watching want to get more into this. Um, mm-hmm. But there is, uh, again, it, it's, it's, it's complex, but at the same time, it all just kind of makes sense if you just stop and think about it for a second. Um, your, your intention has a lot to do with what, whether things are right or wrong. Indeed, bottom line. I mean, that's that's broadly what we've been saying here for the last forty minutes or so, right? Mm-hmm.
1: Although, although, if we look at the principles of morality, the intention has a lot to do with it, but it's not the first thing we should look at. Right? An action is going to seek out something naturally by what it does, or firstly, uh, we call that the moral object. St. Thomas Aquinas actually says there are three there are three elements that set morality. The first one is the moral object. That's what the thing it tends towards naturally. We call that sometimes in Latin, the finis operis, the end of the action or the end of the work. There are circumstances we oftentimes talk about, hey, what are the circumstances of an action? Um, Those are the things that surround the action, the character of persons, for instance. And then there is our intention, the purpose of the end that we're seeking. That's the finis operantis, the, the end of the worker or the one working. Okay, so uh, example here, a thief, he steals $20 from the poor box in the church to indulge his passions of lust by buying some dirty magazine or something like that, right? Okay, the moral object there is the taking of property of another unjustly, The circumstance, and particularly important one there, is he's taking this from a church, a sacred place, and the purpose of it is to satisfy his evil, lustful passions. So all three of those things are wrong, But we have to look at all of those if we're going to understand the morality of something there. That moral object is the first thing we have to look at. The primary and essential morality of an action is set by that, not by our intention. Um, The intentions are important. Our, Our will and our intellect have to get involved for something to be moral or immoral. But we don't first look at our intention. This is where good intentions to do something evil don't overcome the evil. Uh, otherwise, we would actually be saying, well, what was your intention? And everything's about what we what we intended, even, you know, so we mm-hmm. didn't intend that. I'm sorry. Then it's it's not a problem. Right? Um, the moral object of adultery, for instance, we it is to transgress another's rights, marital rights. So it, it, it tends towards um, injustice as well as unchastity, but it tends towards injustice that sets the act as evil in and of itself. And there are no circumstances, no intentions that could ever relieve us of that grave evil. There's no way that that could be moral. We would call this an intrinsic evil. And that's where we have. if we look at the moral object first, we'll start seeing certain things are intrinsically evil. Other things might be evil depending on the circumstances or our intentions. Whereas the circumstances, that second category there, they're con- the conditions that change the nature of the action they either make it more or less voluntary. And from the earliest times, we always sort of talked about things as who, what, where, with whom, why, in what way, and and when. So our... Our actions derive some of the morality from these circumstances. Everyone admits that. Uh, it, sometimes we, we worry a little too much about the circumstances. I tell you as a, as a confessor, sometimes people worry far too much about the circumstances when it doesn't matter whether <laughs> you slapped your brother and hit your sister and kicked this person. You just, you know, you, you did violence to some of your family. It's, that's, yeah. that's the sin there, right? Um, I don't need the whole story. It doesn't matter in those cases. Uh, but there are circumstances that do affect the morality of an action, right? Um, certain things give a, a greater or lesser value. Um, uh, in the example that I put in the notes there, you can tell it was from New Zealand, a power shell, power abalone. They're all over the place down in New Zealand. Um, certain things are more valuable. So certain aspects of what we do are more valuable or less valuable. The carver who is going to decorate his piece with this shell, which is just beautiful, is more, it likes and wants that thing more than the person who's just eating the, eating the, uh, the basically sea snail, right? Right. Um, But for circumstances to actually affect an action, they have to be morally good or bad in themselves, right? And we have to be aware of them. Some of them completely alter an action. Others only affect them. And they're going to change certain things. Like we we will say there is a moral and a theological species to um, uh, to an an action. Circumstances will affect these. The moral species are the virtues that this thing violates this or or promotes. I, I take a vow of chastity and that adds to uh, that adds to chastity, the virtue of religion. So if I sin against those, now it's actually a sin against two virtues. Um, so that's the moral species and a circumstance can change those things too, right? Uh, the fact that I've taken a vow, it may, means a certain action will be greater or, or lesser as a result of that. That's a circumstance. Um, Theological species is just a big name for mortal or venial sin, whether it's a mortal sin or it's a grave evil or it's a lesser evil. Um, Circumstances can change the theological species, can make an act, we could say, that might certain times be a grave sin into a lighter sin if it admits of what we call parvity of matter, lighter matter. But it can't usually take a mortal sin and turn it into a venial sin otherwise. Right? So just because of certain circumstances, we don't get to say, oh, that's normally a mortal sin, but not for me in these circumstances. Um, right. th- those things would be example of that where it can changes is lying. Lying because it's against our nature, going back to the natural law there, right? Our mind is meant for truth, and our speech and our, our communication ability is meant to communicate what's in our mind. When we don't do that, when we communicate something that is false, contrary to what is in our mind, we're acting against our nature. That is something that is intrinsically evil, why lying is never right. And because it's against our nature of itself, it would be a mortal sin, a grave evil. But we don't tend to lie about, or at least in most cases, great things. So there's sometimes light matter, and that would make this not a grave evil, but a lighter evil, not a mortal sin, but a venial sin. Um, Circumstances that don't change the moral species, either going to increase or decrease the degree of morality there. And then, then there's our, our motive. Then there's our intention, right? And our intention does change things here because we choose something there. The moral character of an act does depend also on our intention, but notice we've come to it last, right? That's not the first thing we need to consider because a motive has its own moral character, but a good motive can't make an evil thing good. Right. Although, like I said before, we have a good action, but an evil reason for that. I give money so I might be seen. I, I give alms and I ring that bell as the Pharisees did. So I get noticed. Good action. Yep. But but an evil result in that I'm I'm in, I'm in it for number one. I'm, I'm I'm in it for because I'm a narcissist at that point. Right. Um, the motive can make an indifferent act good or bad. It can increase or diminish the goodness of an act and it can evil make an act evil. It can increase or diminish the evil of an act, but it's never able to turn an evil act into a good act. Using a computer in the abstract is is indifferent. I'm using it to hopefully communicate truth to people right now. So hopefully that's a good thing. I'm satisfying justice by paying my bills using it. I can also use it to indulge sinful curiosity, turning that indifferent act into now a sinful one. Right? The motive here actually sets it up because the moral object isn't good or bad. It's indifferent using the computer. Right? Almsgiving is good. Right? If I do it uh, under a vow, it increases its goodness. Circumstances set that up. And my motive here, if vanity enters in, it loses some of that goodness. If vanity is the chief movement, it, now it's positively evil just to even give somebody that money. Steal money to buy drugs to get high, um, that's more grievous than stealing it to feed yourself. Sometimes stealing the money to feed yourself or taking the food that somebody else isn't using wouldn't even be sinful because you need to take care. This is the indirect voluntary again. Let us not do evil, says St. Paul, that good may come from it, right? And that's not just he who says that. That is a long refrain of philosophers and and moralists over, over many, many thousands of years who have said that. You always have to have a good motive. And at least have to indirectly or virtuously point that towards your eternal end, right? It doesn't have to be always there. We don't always have to think about our eternal end and everything we do and intend. we can have this virtual intention for there. It, why it's good recommending to Catholics to make that, that morning offering, because then everything throughout your day is offered that way, right? But we can't act for pleasure alone in anything. We can't just go out and act for pleasure alone. But we can have mixed motives. That's fine. We can enjoy the pleasure of something, and we can virtually intend it certain ways, um, as long as it's not just, I want pleasure for myself. That's, that's a self-seeking. That's going to add an evil component to things. Um, and we've, that's even a part of a condemnation under Innocent, Innocent the 11th, though, again, apologetically wise, we're, we don't want to incorporate too much of, of what comes from faith or authority outside of that, which the people who might be watching this might accept. But we mm-hmm. could say with St. Thomas Aquinas here, pleasure exists for the sake of action, not action for pleasure. Pleasure is fine to take and enjoy out of an action that brings pleasure, provided that, but it shouldn't be the motive for that thing, right? We should have right. better motives than that, although it's perfectly fine to include that as part of, in one of those motives. There's a reason that God attached certain acts to certain acts, pleasures, in order to help us to do those things. But we have to, we have to raise ourselves up above that base level too.
0: And and this is why it's always a a better idea to not be constantly seeking after the comfiest, the nicest, the most pleasant, the most tasting, whatever. Because eventually, we're just going to get into the habit of constantly seeking after pleasure for pleasure's sake. Right. Exactly.
1: And then and then we completely forget about what the purpose of these things is, other than pleasure. We we, we stop seeking them in any kind of virtuous way. We actually impede the development of virtue. That, that's certainly not a good
0: thing. Right. So we've been talking about the the actual acts and and our motives and all that kind of stuff. We haven't talked about conscience really yet. Where does that come into play?
1: We did mention it earlier, and I said it was oh, the, yeah. the, the, the the subjective room, uh, rule. So I mean, we, but it's been a little while. So let's go back to it. Yeah. Um, so this was the subjective application of these principles. So the conscience is not Jiminy cricket standing on our shoulder. Um, whispering in our ear what we should do, and we can listen to it or not listen to it. It's actually a judgment. It's not, it's not the moral principles in our mind. It's not just the uh, – it's a judgment or dictate of our practical reason. It's our reason telling us and employing general principles and the, the, whether this act is good or evil, that is, I need to do right now. It's not in the future, it's right now, or it's an act that I've just done in the past. So it can look backwards, it can look at the present, but it doesn't look forward. Um, it's not a power habit, it's an action. It, this conscience is an action. Um, we we look at it as sort of judging an action, right? That's that's why it, it looks like an action there. <clears throat> we call it judge conscience. Um, but it's saying, here, hick and nuke, here and now, this thing how do I apply the laws to it? Okay. And it's, it's going to be either true or false, right? We either, it's either conformed to the eternal law or it isn't right. And if it's not conformed to the eternal law, it can be a scrupulous conscience. It can be diseased in a certain way. It feels evil where there isn't any evil. It looks at things like, oh no, I've written that letter wrong. And so it must be a mortal sin. It's, it's erroneous that the, the eternal law doesn't touch that and it's that's beyond, that's beyond reasonable. It's not using our reason correctly. It can be perplexed. Um, it sees both sin in act and in omission, so it doesn't know what to do. It doubts in a certain way. Um, we can have a lax conscience, that so we easily excuse sin or we minimize the gravity of sin. Um, and the more sin we commit here, the h- more hard that we make that conscience. It can be pharisaic. Um, Minimizes grave sin, but magnifies slight matters, right? It gets everything backwards and inverted. Uh, and our conscience does end up being a really important kind of judgment tool, though. Um,
0: definitely does. Okay. So at what point is it, because I, I, it seems like many people today, when they look at whether things are moral or not, it's like, well, it's just my conscience that decides. It's just my conscience. Mm-hmm. And we know that that's not the case uh, because we can be, like you said, our, our conscience can be erroneous. but. At what points in this moral calculus when we're trying to make decisions should we start to rely on our conscience?
1: Well, everything, really. Um, but we, uh, we have to make an effort. Just like when we talked about before right reason, we have to have a well-formed conscience. We can't just, you know, we have to inform ourselves about what the moral law is and we have to think through our decisions, we have to prepare it well, we have to contemplate these actions, and then then our conscience is able to, to, to judge rightly. We have to take that serious care to possess, on all occasions, a true conscience. And that should be pretty clear to common sense. It, it's, the, it's the proximate rule. It's the one that I have right before me for what I'm supposed to do. It's to guide my moral life. It's the most important that our moral life be guided by some kind of standard, Right. And that better be correct or it better not be false. So we have to take this effort to to be have a careful knowledge of of study the laws and principles. Why one of the reasons we're we're even touching on this in this series, we have to take wise counsel and the case we we have to pray. We have to ask for that in that light to understand what we need to do. Um, We have to remove obstacles to that true conscience, usually removing the blindness by unforgiven sin. We have to follow our conscience. Once we try and make that effort to have a true conscience, once that conscience tells us and commands a certain action, it's certain, right? We have to follow it, whether it's true or it's an error. If that error is invincible, that's where we go back to those, those errors, that the invincible ignorance, things mm-hmm. that are done out of invincible ignorance are going to be invincible error, right? Okay. Okay. And certain times that conscience is going to be incorrect, right? If you thought, for instance, there's about half the diocese in, in the country where Ascension Thursday is no longer a holy day of obligation, right? And even in tradition, yes, we say uh, probably best to say it was formerly a holy day of obligation because the church law now doesn't require it just because we are traditional Catholics doesn't mean that somehow we have a different law that we have to follow. Right. Correct. The church law doesn't say we have to come to mass. It's a good idea to come to mass. But if we incorrectly thought it was or if we're not in one of those dioceses where it is, if we incorrectly thought it was and we decided I'm not going to come to mass today. I don't care. We've committed a serious sin. We violated the law, even though that's not the law. We violate the law as we understand it. Our conscience said that that was that was, we were to do that thing, go to mass, and we decided not to. We violated the conscience. It was erroneous. It was not true, but it was certain. And it was a false conscience, but we still are now guilty of that. Um, okay. And we could say also, if we have an erroneous conscience, we have to, we're never allowed to follow an erroneous conscience if it's a vincible error, if we could get rid of it. We would We would sin in that case, right? Right. We can't act on contrary to such a conscience either, because well, it, we have to have a judgment, and then it's so we have to try to correct this error. That's why we can be in this situation with invincible ignorance, invincible ignorance, where we have to try to we have to try to solve these doubts.
0: So this would be someone who maybe hasn't gone to mass in a long time, and you know, went to Catholic school when they were a child, and and goes, you know, I know that there are a certain number of holy days. I have no idea what they are. Um, I know I'm supposed to go but I don't know. So I'm not going to be guilty of it. So I'm just not going to go. That would be so, I'm not, so I'm not going
1: to ask. I'm not going to answer the question. Right, right. Right. So that's that student who thinks, well, you know, maybe I can just get out of it. Maybe I can just not yeah. ask that question. The conscience is telling him to ask the question. And the fact that his conscience is then erroneous afterward. Well, he's guilty for that. And, right. and as
0: a result. Okay. So, what is the next next step that we're going to be looking at? I guess after all of this, and then we're going to look at the 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 thing itself, sin, right? Yeah,
1: yeah, and briefly because we we've talked about a lot of the principles leading up there, so a lot of the things will set up the rest of it here just pretty simply. So sin okay. is we could call it in a certain sense the mystery of iniquity, right? Because our, uh, Gary Lagrange has a great quote on this. Um, he's a he's Dominican, uh, the, sort of the the hammer of heretics of the 20th century, uh, kind of Dominican. Good, good guy. His stuff is very deep. I, I think there's probably about, I, I want to say somebody recently who I was listening to, um, he translated about 700,000 words on like two books of his. Oh my gosh. So um, there's a lot of writing that he's done. <laughs> <laughs> um, he, he was also the, the, the involved in the doctoral thesis for John Paul II's um, uh, time in, in, in Rome when he was studying there and was said to have quipped that the man writes much and says little. So <laughs> he, <laughs> yeah. he did have prolific writing, um, John Paul II, but also Gary Gillibrand as well. But he says a lot. And um, in his providence, he, he writes, our whole life is shrouded in mystery. Every one of our salutary acts presupposes a mystery of grace. Every one of our sins, a mystery of iniquity, presupposing the divine permission to allow us to exist, uh, to allow evil to exist in view of some higher good, higher purpose, which would be clearly seen only in the next life. And the reason it's called a mystery is because there seems nothing beneficial in it for us to engage in sin, right? It it impedes our eternal end and impedes that relationship, that love, that friendship with God. It seems like it's going to lead to our supreme unhappiness, and yet we happily engage in it anyway, seemingly very happy to be engaging in something that takes away happiness. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's so it, it's something that we, if we really understood it, if we really appreciated it, even even without revelation, even if on just this level of violating the moral law and what that really implies for us, we would be horrified. In the ignatian retreat maybe you've been on one well i guess you're you're down near a retreat center down there so probably at some point in time yeah. in your life you've had the opportunity um that's one of the considerations to see the real depth of sin um because it really helps us to not only uh, on a on a, a level with our spiritual life to love god more but also to try to conform our lives to the moral law better if we see if we see the, this bad human act and that's what sin is it's a bad human act a the a word, a deed that's not conformed to right reason. So it's not conformed to a well-formed conscience. It's not conformed to the divine law. Um, Putting this all together, right? We have to have advertence, knowledge, and attention, at least indirectly, to the malice of an action to sin. We also have to have consent. So we have to have knowledge and will. So we're back to the beginning here. We're putting it all together. Um, Either that the consent has to be indirect in its cause or direct, right? If you don't understand and take note of an evil, you can't commit what we would call a formal sin. The action may look sinful, but you are not formally guilty of it. What sin formally? Okay. Like we, we've talked about in some of the other series about sacraments matter and form. You have stuff and what makes up that stuff, um, right? Sin is a privation. It's a lack of a good. It's a lack of something. It's also something positive. So it's it's a negative and a positive. And sometimes this is said to be adversio ad deo, conversio ad creatorum, an aversion, a turning away from God or our last end, if you want to just take God out of the picture for a moment and look at it completely on a philosophical way, turning away from our last end and towards something that it isn't, towards a creature, to turn away from the creator, towards a creature. The turning from God is the privation. The turning towards the creature is that positive aspect of seeking out something. And so St. Thomas Aquinas and Catholic theology, just to sort of, you know, put this into the apologetic perspective, it makes sense that the Catholic theology and the way that our Lord has designed our Catholic system would require two things to do to get back out of that sin. So we need to Uh turn, we've turned away from God and towards a creature, and now we need to turn back to God, and that's by confession. And we also need to turn away from the creature, which is by doing some penance. And that restores the proper order, right? And that's th- that's why we have these two things. This is also why we could, in an apologetic way, say, when you don't do the confession part and you just say, I'm going to turn away from the creature, how do you turn back to God? How do you ensure that's going on when we so easily turn away? This is why the our Lord established this sacrament of penance, the sacrament of confession, and also requires something more than just, I'm really sorry, God, this life right. of penance, this life of reparation to repair for the effects thereof, the temporal punishment due to sin, because sin not only turns us away from God, and in fact, that's fairly easy to fix by turning back to God through the sacraments or through a perfect act of contrition, but the turning away from the creature, the ripping us away from that, that's what hurts, and that's what takes a long time and some effort.
0: Hmm. yeah fascinating i i had never considered that that was the twofold reason for it but makes all the sense in the world yeah, yeah. Huh. um and then of course we have again just looking at some basic catechism stuff here but it but it fits very neatly in this in this area but there's the different mm-hmm. types of sin as well
1: yeah we have original sin and we have personal sin original sin is what set up all the other sins right that was adam and his the effects of his sins, the the lack now of original justice, the wounds to our soul. We have four wounds to our soul in our in our uh, mind, in our intellect. We have this wound, which is um, our ignorance of things, our our lack of a knowledge where we should be, a blindness of our of our, of our mind. We have a malice in our will. We tend to turn towards evil and seek out evil things. We have concupiscence in our concupiscible passions, the things that easily seek out pleasure. We'd like to seek out pleasure. And we have this weakness in those irascible passions, the one that are meant to to give us kind of fortitude, like anger. We we tend to have a weakness there. And that's the effect of original sin, which sets us up for the other kind of sin, which we're guilty of particularly our personal sins. These are offenses against God that we have deliberately willed. Personal sin then is divided up into two categories typically. We call it mortal sin and venial sin. Mortal because it kills the soul as it were. It destroys the life of God, sanctifying grace and charity in a soul. Venial sin is, is not one, it's, it's only analogically sin uh, because it doesn't destroy that life in us, but it wounds that life. It helps us to to not walk well. It helps us to to start limping around. Well, and if we limp around near a cliff, we're going to fall over the cliff. Perhaps that's the mortal sin. And so venial sin is not a good thing. It's not just an okay thing. This is also why we're looking at our our last end. We we shouldn't look at from this idea of the guardrail again. Well, I can drive against the guardrail. I can sin venially all the time and I won't fall off. We'll break the car and eventually we, the guardrail will end and then, then we're in real trouble. Um, okay. So it's pardonable by an act that is done with actual grace. It wounds the soul, but we can, we can get it gone by, by turning ourselves back because we haven't lost that principle of, of that supernatural life. Mortal sin has to be only God himself can put that grace back in our soul. And conditions for mortal sin, very catechism-like here, there are three of them. We need grave matter or an erroneous conscience that believes it to be grave matter. Stealing the cookie out of the cookie jar is not grave matter, but if a kid thinks it is, he's committed a mortal sin, right? Um, So there's certain sins, like we said before, that don't ever admit of light matter. Um, they're, they're, They're always grave sins. The lust, for instance, they're always that way. Blasphemy are always that way. Um... There are other things that certainly admit, like lying, of light matter. So these could be mortal sins. They could be venial sins. The first category, only mortal sins. Um, and an erroneous belief that the matter is grave, well, that means that we're willing to consent to a mortal sin. So that's the first condition. We need grave matter or mistake mistaken conscience that it is grave matter. Second, we have to have full advertence. We have to know what we're doing. We have to pay, be paying attention there. So any kind of lack of attention or uh, there can take away whether it, it, it being a mortal sin. And we have to have full consent of the will. That's also necessary. When you have full advertence, you have full consent of the will. They they go together. But it is to this point where we ha- we know it's a sin. We know it's a grave sin. We simply we do it with with full knowledge and we just don't care, right? Um, Fear and passion don't pre- pre- don't go in and prevent a sin from being mortal if it is cul- if we're culpable for it, and I I think perhaps in the in the in the end here we could set aside a, a sort of practical rules because sometimes it's not very clear whether something is, is a grave sin or not, and as a confessor again sometimes people will come in and go I, Father I don't know whether this is a grave sin or not, well if you're not sure just confess it firstly, um, yeah but. Uh, if a doubt arises because of fear, or punishment or embarrassment, just confess it, just get rid of it. Um, and if there's a real doubt, well, you should you should ask, you could, should try to figure this out, right. Um, if if, we're, if there are things that enter in, we're half asleep or we've you know maybe had a, an extra beer, not to the point of drunkenness, but you know, th- maybe there's, there's uh, we're not in complete comp- possession of ourselves violence or passion. These things can sort of re- reduce that and bring in these doubts. So it's, it's good to think through that and contemplate before, before we uh, go any further there. Um, and then venial sin, it's a disorder. Um, it can be venial because of the nature. It's not a serious disorder because of poverty of matter, right? If I steal uh, $100,000 or if I steal 10 cents, they're not the same sin. Uh, one is a venial sin. Or there's a circumstance, right? I take twenty dollars. It's not per, probably a, a grave sin in most cases, but it's the last twenty dollars that beggar had. And I, uh, by the way, I punch him in the face along the way and and stole yeah. his wallet, as we said before, sure. right? Uh, <laughs> so you know that that's a serious sin. I I I took away his only means for a meal that day. Perhaps that that's the serious effect of that means. It's a serious sin. Um, but there, but these venial sins, the lighter things, are of a different nature, and so frequently committing venial sins doesn't just add up it's not like I can get to a point where I fall over the cliff eventually no it's mm-hmm. it's not that way though there are certain occasions where that could that could happen there's only one um, there, there's the well I say there's three actually so there's the mistaken judging of a venial sin to be a mortal sin and doing it anyway there's a okay. really malicious intent right that punching the beggar in his faith and taking his wallet was certainly malicious right so now even if it was only twenty dollars, it's it's much more serious there. Or matter accumulates, right? And in this case, it's where we really want to steal a lot of money, but we steal it a little bit at a time. We write that algorithm that takes a hat that just rounds off everything down to, we, we steal that 10th that of a cent over and over and over and over again. Yeah. But we intend to get a lot of money out of it. So the intention there, going back to where we're talking about intention, the intention makes all of those seemingly venial sins add up to, in fact, a mortal sin or a seriously grave wrong because we were intending that
0: the whole time along. Yeah. Well, father, this has been fascinating. It's, it's such a great uh, refresher for those of us who have had some of this catechism in in the past. And and for those of us who maybe are hearing some of this for the first time, you've, you've laid it all out very clearly and I appreciate it so much. Um, Where are we going next? I, I know we're going to be having, having you back again next week. What are we going to be discussing then?
1: So what we're looking at now is since we've sort of given a, a overall an apologetic to set up natural law, and and this relationship with with uh, with God as as the foundation for our morality, and now we've looked at some of the principles of this. Now I think we're going to try to analyze perhaps some of the more controversial or at least uh, relevant of the of the moral topics that oftentimes come up in light of these things, sort of. Sort of like what we did before with the miracles, um, the, the miracle series. We gave the theory behind it. We showed the possibility of miracles, and then we looked at specific examples thereof. So we're going to try to look at some specific examples of the of the more important and the more yeah controversial. We'll make it more exciting that way. Okay, um, sounds of, good. Of the of the uh, yeah less theory, more application. People like that. Answer some questions on these things, even if some people already know where the Catholic Church stands on them. But to explain them so they we understand how reasonable they really are.
0: Okay, fantastic. Father, looking forward to it. Thank you so much for putting this together for us. Oh, no, it's not a problem at all. It is
1: my job, and I'm just I just work here. <laughs> yeah,
0: fair enough. Thanks, Father. All right, God bless you. You too. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Apologetic series on the SSPX podcast and on our YouTube page. Please consider subscribing to the YouTube account and the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever fine podcasts are found. And please consider leaving a rating or a review on this podcast. This will help to make sure more people can find this podcast and discover the beauty and the truth of traditional Catholicism. Until next time, thank you for joining us, and God bless you.